I'm going to give you a little mini teaching before I get into the grande teaching. So it's a way of my extending my opportunity to teach today. Not really, that's something I think I need to do to help some of you. And some of you understand all this already, so check out for four or five minutes and then I'll call you back in. We're going to look at five tests of knowing God's will because we're going to be looking at the matter of God's will, how to do God's will. That's what we're really going to concentrate on today as we look at Psalm 143. However, we need to know what the will of God is. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The will of God is spelled out for us. Probably over 95% of it is very clear for us in the Bible. If you want to know what my will is, or I want to know what your will is, what has to happen? I have to tell you what my will is. I can speak it, or I can write it out. Same with you. In order for me to know what your will is, you have to either tell me what it is, or write it out so I can read it. God has spoken to us in His Word most specifically in the Word, Jesus Christ. But we know from the Scriptures, these are Jesus' own words found in Luke chapter 24, that all Scripture, and when He said all Scripture, He included what we now know as the Old Testament, testifies to Him. The purpose of the Old Testament is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament speaks to us, The Spirit of God speaks to us through the Old Testament. And the will of God is given to us in both testaments of our Bible. There is that aspect of God's will, a certain amount of it, which is a little murky to us. Sometimes we're not really clear what His will is because it doesn't designate specifics like who you're to marry. The Bible is very clear. You're to marry a believer in Christ. That's sure truth. However, there are a lot of people who are in Christ who might be a candidate for your spouse. We don't know the specifics of that. But we go to the Lord and we ask God to help us with these kinds of decisions. Where should you work? Maybe you're offered two positions at the same time. Which one should you take? That's baffling. And we wrestle with those kinds of things. The Lord will give us insight. I'm going to give you these tests and talk very quickly about them for determining situations like that. Remembering what? Most of God's will is in the Bible. You want to know what God's will is? Read the Bible. He will tell you what it is. Here's the first test, the promise test. In Psalm 8611, the psalmist says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to to fear your name. So, teach me, Lord, and guess what? Psalm 32, 8, God says, I will instruct you, and I will teach you in the way you should go. He promises that. That's the promise test, isn't it? And by the way, Psalm 33, 11 says, in addition to the fact that we've seen what we saw, that I will counsel you, God says, with my eye upon you, and my counsel lasts to all generations. What we're going to look at today was written by King David 3,000 years ago. But the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
It's just as relevant to you and me today as it was then. Why? Because the Spirit of God is the one who wrote it first through David. In fact, in 2 Samuel 22, this is what David says. The Spirit of God has spoken through me. He knew it. He knew it was not His Word. It was the Word of the Lord. Here's the second test. It's the partner test. Proverbs 1.5 says, A man of understanding will acquire counsel. If you are a person who is going to understand the will of God, find someone whom you know is a woman or a man of the Word of God. A person who meditates on God's Word, who loves God's Word, who knows the value of God's Word. It's more precious than silver or gold or any other precious stone, the Word of God. And partner up with that person and have a relationship with that person so you can go to her or go to him and say, would you weigh in on this decision I'm seeking to make? And seek a person who has enough interest in you and, more importantly, respect for God not to just say what they think you want to hear. But what does God say about it? Here's the third test. The purpose test. This is perhaps the most important of the five. And it is based on Isaiah 43, 7, which tells us that God created us for His glory. This is underscored by 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which says, whatever you do, that's comprehensive. Do it all for the glory of God. So the test we can apply is, if I were to do this, will this honor God? Will this bring glory to God? Test number four, the preference test. Psalm 37, the Bible says this in that passage of Scripture. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Now listen, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. If I do those first two things, if I trust in the Lord, if I dwell in this land and cultivate faithfulness, we're living in a fever pitch kind of environment, aren't we? Everything's going so quickly. Everything is just boom, boom, boom. We need to learn to settle down and delight ourselves in the Lord. Remembering what He says, I, the Lord, do not change. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I delight in the Lord... I'm putting everything I have in terms of my sense of who I am and why I'm here in the Lord. I'm trusting in Him. He will give me the desires of my heart. That does not mean that if I delight in the Lord, that's all i got to do. i just got to delight in the Lord, and He's going to give everything Mike Woods wants. Not, not, not so fast. He's going to put His desires in my heart. And there's great safety in that for him and for me. And the last thing is the peace test, Colossians 3.15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the word rule actually would be better translated to us as 21st century people. Referee in your heart. Really, it's the word umpire in your heart. Call the balls and strikes in your life. Call the fouls in your life. We're to let the peace of God rule. Now, as an aside, I need to say this. 
there have been, there probably will continue to be from time to time, when I'm seeking the will of God, I'm delighting myself in the Lord, and I come to the place where I believe I've found what He wants me to do, that it's accompanied not initially by peace. Sometimes there's a little unsettledness. And do you know what I attribute that to? To the devil not wanting me to follow through with what I have concluded is his will. So we must be aware of these things as we seek to know the will of God. I hope these things might help you a little bit in your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this day. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that by your Spirit, you gave us the Word of God through the prophets and the apostles. We now thank you that as we open the Word of God and go to the 143rd Psalm, that you're going to talk to us in our hearts. We ask you, Lord, to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law. We ask you, Lord, that you will search us and know us, try our anxious thoughts, see if there's any hurtful way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, we do pray that you would unite our hearts to fear you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bible to Psalm 143. And this morning I'm going to aim this message to fathers who are present, but not just to fathers. This is for all people, male, female, single, married, people of all walks. There is a message for us here today. Psalm 143 Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no man living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. In colonial America, at the top of the list of men from every walk of life, 
from every rung of the socioeconomic ladder. It did not matter if they were leaders in their community or commoners in their community. This was the desire of men in colonial America. At the top of the list is that they desired to have a solid marriage and to have children. Fatherhood and husbandhood were at the top of the list. That's quite a contrast to America today. Is Men have a tendency, and I'm not taking pot shots at any man in the room, but a tendency to want two things. Basically, a good job, good money that goes with it, and lots of it so that that man or we as men can pursue all our leisurely interests to the max. There was a transcendent cause in the minds and hearts of our colonial forefathers. That meaning that they got outside of themselves and they weren't stuck on themselves. They were looking for opportunity to be servants, not just in their broader community, but more importantly, in their most important community, the community of their families. They wanted to find a wife with whom they could make a life and build a family. That's amazing, isn't it? You cannot read anything about that era without reaching that conclusion. Do you have any idea how important it is for children to have a father who follows the Lord? In the year 2000, I know it's a bit outdated, the Swiss government authorized a study of the impact of a father. Now, understand Switzerland is not the most spiritual country in the world. It's in Europe. There are devout followers of Christ in Europe, but they are in the decided minority. But it was amazing what was found. Let me give you the short summary of it. If a father was involved in church, and I understand that just because a man goes to church does not mean he is a spiritual man. He can go out of obligation. He can see it as a means to the end of getting into heaven, hoping that that will be part of his cadre of good works that will make him acceptable and will not be against him when he gets before the Lord in judgment. Bear in mind what David wrote in this psalm in verse 2. In your sight, no man living is righteous. Get that? No man, no man living, or woman for that matter. But if the father was discovered in Switzerland to be a churchgoer, no matter how faithful his wife's devotion was to the church, only one child in 50 would become a regular worshiper. 2%. If a father did go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother of that child, between two-thirds and three-fourths of their children would become churchgoers when they left the nest. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Dad, if that is true in Europe, in Switzerland, be sure it has some relevance to you today as a leader. And by the way, thank God you're here today. You're setting a good example for your children to follow. The question that we want to ask and find answers for from this passage of Scripture from God Himself is this. How can we see a 
revival in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own church, in our own city, in our own area. How can God be set free if we can even speak? I am hesitant to even use that analogy. God is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants to do, but He has, in a sense, bound Himself to people who are revived to accomplish His purpose in the world. There is a crying need for a biblical fatherhood in the world. What kind of man is such a man? Well, he's a man after God's own heart. David wrote this psalm. David, all of his flaws were out in the open. He was an adulterer one time in his life. He was a murderer. And yet he was described not just in this time before he committed those sins, but even afterwards for centuries as a man after God's own heart. He came back to God when he made those forays into sin. He came back to God. He was a man after God's own heart. Men who have such a heart are men who treasure the things which God treasures. God treasures the family. He created the family. It's the basic social unit of humanity. He created man, male and female, so that they could come together and be completed in each other. They could be an agent of procreation. They could be people who found fulfillment and completion in one another. They depicted the covenant that God made with His people in that they became a picture of what God would call His church. Men after God's own heart. Here's a second category. Gap men. What do I mean by that? Well, Ezekiel 22.30 says this. God speaks at a time, just like we saw last week, when Babylon had come in and they'd wiped the hill upon which the Temple Mount was, where the Temple, it was no more, it was destroyed, and they'd torn down all the walls, And this is what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, I searched for a man who would build up the wall and who would stand in the gap before me for the land so that I might not destroy it. But I found none. Can you imagine? God scoured the landscape of Israel. He looked into the hearts of Israel Men, He couldn't find one man who could fulfill that role of building up the wall, a physical wall, and standing in the gap before Him. That would be praying to Him, interceding for Him on behalf of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. Fast forward 70 years. There's a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not a priest but he was a great leader. He loved the Lord. When he discovered that his beloved city of David had been destroyed and the condition in which it was found, he asked and was granted permission from the king of Babylon to go back. And he went with a vision to do something to restore the city. And when he was leading the people to rebuild the wall, that was his job, not the temple. Zerubbabel was the one who was given the charge to build the temple. But you had to get the wall built first. Opposition came. 
and the scripture says, these are the writings of Nehemiah. When the opponents raised their ugly heads, the enemies came and they came with a vengeance. This is what he said. He said, we prayed to our God and we set a guard up against them day and night. And then when he looked into the faces of the nobles, the aristocrats, and the officials, and it says all the people of the land, when he looked in their faces, he saw fear in their eyes. And then he said to them, Do not fear. Remember your God who is awesome and great. We've got an awesome God, don't we? When we are afraid, what do we do? We look in His face. We don't look in the face of the enemy. We look in His face. And what do we see in His face? Do we see fear in His face? Do we read indecision in His face? We don't read any of that or see any of that, do we? And then the Scripture says, this is what Nehemiah said. Remember, what's he doing? He's building up the wall. God had found His man to build up the wall, to stand in the gap, hadn't He? And this is what He said to them. And fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, for your homes. Fight for them. We're in a fight, men. If you're going to be part of the vanguard that is going to be used by God to bring a revival in America and in the world. I guarantee you, if this message is being proclaimed in this place today, it's being proclaimed many places today in this country and around the world. What have we to do? We're going to have to be men who are gap men in our home. We're not going to be in a fist fight. We're going to be in a fight on our knees before God begging God for our children, begging God for our wives, begging God to fall upon us as individuals and upon our homes, helping us to be such men. We need to be revived men. The kind of man that God uses, the kind of person God uses, is a person who walks in revival. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the definition that I have gleaned in my study of Psalm 143. Here's the way it goes. Revival is God's Spirit conforming God's child. Notice this is a personal plea. David's pleading for himself, revive me, he says. There's nothing wrong with that. We have to be in that same posture. Lord, revive me. Spirit of God, conform me to God's will by God's Word for God's glory. That's revival. And we are to walk in that. It's not a Sunday go-to-meeting kind of event. It's to be a common event. And we look at the first main idea that comes from this passage. You and I are candidates for revival if we have a sense of spiritual unrest. Do you have this restlessness in your soul? You say, I know there's got to be more to this life, which is called the Christian life, more than just coming to a place like this once a week and singing songs to the Lord, that's important. Listening to people pray, that's important. Listening to the Bible taught, that's important. All those things are important. However, you still say there's something missing in my life. St. Augustine put it this way, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, O Lord. The restlessness in your heart. You may have trusted Christ as 
a child or even as an adult. But you still sense there's more. We know that when you receive Christ, you receive all of Him, not just part of Him, because the Bible says, of His fullness, speaking the fullness of Christ, we have all received in grace upon grace. We've received all of Jesus. Be sure of that. The big question is, has He gotten all of us? Because we have the capacity to pull away from the Lord and start freelancing, doing what we want to do as opposed to giving Him the proper focus and proper place in our lives. Look at verse 4 of our passage of Scripture. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. This is King David, the man after God's heart. Do you sense that he was troubled? Do you sense he had spiritual unrest? Well, look at 11, the second line of verse 11. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. He had soul trouble. Do you have soul trouble? Do you feel that in your heart from time to time? Do you wish to be freer in your walk with the Lord? There are sources of unrest which are very obvious. In this particular case, David begins by speaking about one enemy. Then before he finishes, he's talking about several enemies. What are those enemies in our lives? I'm going to speak about the two main ones. I'm going to take them in the order of their influence. The biggest one is what the Bible calls our flesh. That is, our self. If you look at the word flesh, flip it, lop off the H, what do you have? Self. We live in a self-hyphenated world. Everything's about self, isn't it? It's a picture of flesh and how flesh always militates against God. Here's the best definition for flesh. I've given it for you. Human personality apart from the renewing and controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, if I'm not letting the Holy Spirit fill me, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to give Him full control of your life. If I'm not doing that, then I'm acting out in the flesh. I could be coming to church. I have preached sermons. I have witnessed I have prayed. I've done all the spiritual disciplines that I'm aware of and done them at certain times in the flesh. I've done them in self-dependence instead of abject dependence upon the Lord. Recognizing I have to be still and know that He is God. What that means is drop your hands. Get your hands off of it, Mike Woods. And your house has probably happened like it has happened in my life and my house from time to time. Every once in a while, all Mike Woods breaks out. All my flesh. I want my way now. And I don't want anyone to disagree with me. That's the flesh. When I think I know better about everything than other people do, I am in the flesh. Even when I'm doing so-called religious things or spiritual things, we look at Galatians 5. If you want to turn back there for a moment. Verses 16 and 17 particularly. If we walk by the Spirit, what is said? We will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's the answer. Walk by the Spirit. Later in the Last part of that passage near the end, it talks about being led by the Spirit. 
keeping in step with the spirits, what the English English Standard Version says. What does that mean? What it means is follow the Spirit of God. That's what the word led means. I'm following the Spirit of God. How do we follow the Spirit of God? Who wrote the Bible? People were used to write the Bible. Several authors. But who was behind all the writing? The Holy Spirit of God who Himself is described by Himself in the Bible as the Spirit of truth. That is, He is the author of truth. He wrote the Bible through those men and women who gave us the Scripture. So we open the Bible and then we follow the leadership of the Spirit. It's not difficult to understand if you get this. And we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But what does verse 17 say? For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for they are in opposition to one another, so that you cannot do what you want to do. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm guaranteeing that there are scores of people in this room today who could say, I know exactly what Paul's talking about. I cannot do what I want to do. I want to follow the Lord. But the moment I start to step out and try, I find myself falling back into patterns that are self-destructive. What is the disconnect? Here's the disconnect. I'm not trying to oversimplify this. I'm just simply trying to teach the truth. Here's the truth. We have to learn the absolute necessity of submitting ourselves to the level that we know how to do that. Relinquishing control to everything. Letting Him protect us. Not having to defend ourselves when we're criticized. Letting Him take hold of our lives. And letting Him have full control. Be filled with the Spirit. And the Bible says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Always be in a position of humility before God and letting Him by His Spirit lead our lives. If we do that, we will not be dominated by the flesh. There will be occasional expressions of the flesh, yes, but what do we do when we do that? God has given us a pathway to get back in line. You don't have to wait to go to confession somewhere to get there. Get confessed up right that moment. Confess your sin. When you know you've sinned, go to the Lord in humility and say, Lord, forgive me for taking back control of my life. Please, Lord. And fill me again. Take control of me again. I surrender once more to You, Lord. I know you're getting tired of this. I know I'm like a broken record, Lord. But I'm wanting to be in sync with You. He never gets tired of that kind of praying, may I tell you? He knows we are but dust, is what the Bible says. He knows we're frail creatures of dust, but He also knows in whom He dwells. And when He dwells in our lives, and He does if you know Christ, because the Bible says in Romans 8 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ does not live in that person. We have Jesus if we've trusted Christ to forgive us and to take over. We need to give Him a new takeover in our lives. Every time we sin, that's what we must do. Take over, Lord. Sorry, Lord. And we're not flippant about that. 
we mean it. We have the same response David had when he knew he sinned. He said, my sin troubles me. The Holy Spirit works in our lives. Let's look at verse 10 as we look at the second main idea. What's the basic idea? You're a candidate for this kind of revived life if you have a sense of spiritual unrest. Here's the second main idea. It is this. Holy Spirit is the catalyst for revival in your heart. Look at verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good Spirit lead me on level ground. The Holy Spirit is the one who must lead us. He instigates this. It is He who is at work in us, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. This is His M.O. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He's God, remember, on the par with God the Father and God the Son. How does the Spirit lead us on level ground? Well, through the Word of God. We've already talked about that. And it's level ground. It's not a roller coaster life. Most of our Christian lives are like this. It's oscillating. But it's level. That doesn't mean we reach a plateau and we never grow. It's almost an imperceptible inclined plane that we walk. When we walk in the Spirit, we follow Him and He leads us. So we're not going down in a deep valley and then coming back on a spiritual high and going down a deep valley. We've been doing that way too much, hadn't we, in our lives? Don't you long to be consistent? That's what David is asking for. And that's what God will grant to us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our half-hearted commitment to God. In John 16:8, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper, and He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's pause just a moment and consider what that means. The devil accuses us. He's our enemy. Not only is the flesh, but the devil. He shames us. Do you ever have a remark in your mind sort of like this? I am a mistake. Have you ever thought about that? Every once in a while, that flashes across my radar skin. Radar screen. I am a mistake. Well, that's not from the Lord. Because what does God say about you? I chose you in Christ when? Before the creation of the world. Why? That you may be holy and blameless in my sight. In love, I predestined you to be what? Adopted into my family. You were chosen by God in eternity. You think He had a plan for you when you were born in this world? Believe it. And He wants you to know it. And the basic idea of that plan is that you are led by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. He'll fill out the details for you. You just do the basic thing and make it your habit to submit to the Holy Spirit of God. And the devil accuses us. We talked about this last week. He wants us to be resentful. He accuses other people to us. See, that person's so-and-so, and that person is lying about you. That person is talking about you. Look, they can lie all they want and talk all they want about you, and we're not to be arrogant about this and say, just come on, bring it on, bring it on. But what we're to do is say, Lord, You take care of that. I can't. If I need to make it right, Lord, I'll make it right to the level I understand it. But you take care, Lord. The Holy Spirit convicts us. In the book of 1 Kings, you read it maybe recently, talks about the great prophet Elijah. And Elijah is facing off with 850 pagan gods, uh, pagan priestesses of pagan gods in Canaan. 
And before he does it, he looks at all the spectators. A lot of spectators. They really are on the edge. They are wondering, am I wanting to go in, really go in and make this kind of commitment, or am I going to be satisfied to stay on the outskirts? And Elijah knew that. And you know what he said to him? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, who is the false god of Canaan, is God, follow Him. In other words, get off the fence. You know, that's what the Lord says to us today. Get off the fence. If you're straddling the fence, you cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God and be satisfied. In other words, you will be the most miserable type of person if you do that. The Lord says, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. You make me sick. You're lukewarm. The Lord wants you and He wants me to have this kind of of commitment. He convicts us. Look at the convicting heart of David, verses 6 and following. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness. I like that, don't you? In the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. The Holy Spirit teaches us to do God's will. We know that. He conforms us in our thinking to the will of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You want to know the will of God? Be a man or a woman who presents your body as a living sacrifice, your whole being to the Lord, saying, Lord, take me. Lock, stock, and barrel. He cuts off our enemies. Look at verse 12 again. In your loving kindness, cut off my enemies. Destroy all those who afflict my soul. The Lord is an expert in ridding us of the attacks of the devil in the sense of they're making any influence in our lives or hurting us. And then also, He teaches us how to deal with our selfishness of the flesh. Why does the Holy Spirit initiate personal revival? Here's why. Look again at verse 11. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. Let that sink in for a moment. Is it for your sake that God revives you? It's for His sake. In Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's for His sake. Why does He do that? Because He has such pure eyes He can't look on sin. Our sins separate. So He wipes us clean of those sins when we come before Him and we yield to Him, we submit to Him. We yield all of who we are to Him. And He sees us in Christ. He sees us as being perfect in Christ. He knows the difference, but He wills to see that in our lives for His glory. Revival is God's Spirit conforming God's child to God's will by God's Word for God's glory. In one of the messages that Jesus gave to the churches in Asia Minor, it was a church at Ephesus. First letter. It was, of all those churches, probably the most desirable one. If 
I had been a pastor, and I had a choice of being a pastor of one of those seven churches, not knowing what Jesus writes about them in that book of Revelation. I would have chosen this church. I mean, it was a veritable beehive of religious activity. In addition to that, it was doctrinally sound. It did not tolerate any false doctrine. Look, we need to be doctrinally sound. We need to be about the work of the Lord, but not in the way in which they did because they had forgotten their first love. Jesus says, I have this against you. You've forgotten your first love. What might that love be? It's Jesus himself. That's what it is. We have forgotten our first love. And then the Lord says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Can you remember when you first fell in love with the Lord? How does your life look now compared to then? Is there any resemblance of the love that you had for the Lord then and now? Well, today is the day to renew that commitment to the Lord. To understand that your life is built in Christ to be victorious. And the biggest victory that you will ever be enabled to win is against yourself. And acknowledging, Lord, I have violated Your will by wanting to control my life. Please forgive me. Would you bow your head? What about you? Could you pray that Lord to the Lord? Lord, I have violated Your will for my life because I have kept back part of my life for myself. It may be money for some of you. It may be sexual addiction for some of you. It may be gossiping for others. It may be something like trying to earn your own way into the kingdom of God. It takes so many different forms. The flesh is sick is what the Bible says. These are the words of Jesus. Can you just say, Lord, I want to give you control of everything today. Can you say that in your heart to the Lord? Can you let go and trust God for everything? And then say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. I want you to lead me. I'm tired of fumbling and stumbling through life. I'm asking you now, Lord, to take control by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord.